Bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today, you're in for a treat. Um, we're going to be talking about the movie that you ha- is a is a must-see movie for everyone. It's called The Boynton Beach Club, and the moral of the movie is it's never too late for love. And my guests today are um, Susan Seidelman, who is the director of the movie. And for the second half of the show, we're going to be talking with her mother, (laughs) which is a story in itself. And her mother wrote the original story, and then that was uh, put into a screenplay by Susan and by Shelley Gitlow. And both Susan and her mother were the producers of the movie. So, um, Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. (laughs) You know, I have to tell you something. Um... My mother. One of the things I want to ask you about is the marketing of this movie and the fact that the uh, the uh, miracle that you actually got this movie made in a town or an industry where um, so much is about making uh, teenage movies. How you were able to make a movie that is about love, loss, and laughs in an adult in an active adult community. Right. <laughs> it was a struggle. <laughs> And the, one of the ways that you did it um, is by having these um, theater parties, or you can explain it in more detail. All I know is that my mother, <laughs> who lives in New York, went to um, the uh, a movie in, I don't remember the name of the theater, but in a Manhattan theater, where um, with a group where you were talking afterwards. Mm-hmm. And she was uh, raving about it, and that... You know, I, I I actually had seen the trailer before then anyway, and had planned to see the movie. But um, but I thought this was a very clever uh, marketing touch to um, to also target active adults and uh, and make theater parties out of it. But why, why don't we start from the beginning? Where this whole um, movie idea came from? Okay. Well, um, actually, the genesis of the idea um, occurred about two and a half years ago. My, my parents had moved to a retirement community down in South Florida in Boynton Beach. And, um, you know, I've been making movies for over 20 years now. And from time to time, my mother has approached me with ideas that she thought I'd be interested in. And, you know, sometimes I thought they were good ideas and sometimes I didn't. But nothing ever really clicked. And then she told me this idea that she had about, um, you know, making a movie about older people who found themselves back in the dating game after many years. And as soon as she told me the idea, I thought, it's like a light bulb went off. I thought it was an amazing idea because no one's talking about that, yet there are so many older people. And when I say older, I just mean, let's say, 50 and above, which, you know, anything older than 40 in Hollywood is considered old. 
but um, there's so many people, 50 and above, who are single, whether it's because they're divorced or, um, you know, widows or widowers, and who are still looking to connect with other people. So when she told me this, I thought, wow, that's, you know, it's a great idea, and especially now that the baby boomer generation has hit 60, I think last year they officially turned 60, there's more and more people uh, in this demographic, and no one's dealing with it. You know, certainly Hollywood movies and, and, and TV shows and the media really kind of ignore ignore the fact that this is happening. <laughs> yes, and, and it must have been quite a leap for you because um, uh, Susan has many, many different credits um, for many movies and, and television shows, including some episodes of Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in, in, in that way, it actually wasn't that much of a leap because, you know, one of the things I've always been interested in is kind of looking at the culture that I'm living in and looking at it kind of almost from like a sociological perspective. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how people live, how they, you know, how they relate to other people. And so, weirdly enough, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I've noticed, you know, because I consider myself very much, I'm kind of smack in the middle of the baby boom generation. Uh-huh. You know, I consider my generation getting older, and so I I find myself fascinated with stories that that deal with that. You know, 20 years ago, actually 21 years ago when I did Desperately Seeking Susan, that was very much about, you know, you, you know, 20-somethings and early 30-somethings, you know, trying to figure out who they were and their identity and, you know, who they were on the outside and who they wanted to be on the inside. And and then when I did Sex in the City about ten years later, you know, the characters were getting a little older. Those ladies are, you know, in their mid-30s to 40s by the time the the, the series ended. You know, and so it felt like it's now been, you know, Uh another eight years. It it Uh felt like it was time to kind of see where those people would be in their 50s and, and, and... you know, we're all approaching, you know, 50 isn't that far away from 60. Yes, yes. Well, so, okay, so there you had this idea, the light bulb went, went on, and, and it's true that really there isn't, there. this is breaking ground. And so then what happened? Well, um, at the time I was actually working on another um, project. I was finishing up uh, a thing I was doing for a project I was working on for Showtime, so I didn't have the time to, I, I love the idea, but I didn't have time to work on the script. So really as a stalling device, I told my mother, uh, I said, why don't you try to write the screenplay? And I didn't really think she was going to do it. I was just kind of stalling for time. And she said to me, I'm not a screenwriter. I don't know how to write a screenplay. And I said, well, go to Barnes & Noble and buy one of those mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. Didn't think she was going to do it, but she did. And um, it, it cut to, you know, three months later, she presented me with this 100-page document that was wow. kind of like a, a funky version of a screenplay. Um, the structure wasn't right, you know, because she had never done it before. Right. But what it had would, was a kind of authenticity because she was writing about people that she knew in her community. She was writing based on people that she knew. So there was something very real about what, the characters were going through, and you know, we've seen so many movies that treat older people as as kind of geriatric uh, jokes or stereotypes. Yes. There, there was something just very honest about the what she had in the, the script and some of the, 
you know, some of the stories all based on kind of, well, on real people she knew or compilations of people she knew. You know, some were sad, some were funny, some were awkward. And, you know, so I asked her if I could take the this 100-page document and, and turn it into a kind of more sort of, professionally structured screenplay with with my writing partner and um and that's what became the movie yes well that it's that authenticity that really um is what makes the movie in the sense of it being poignant and and also funny and and just very real i mean that was what was captivating about it um but the hard part was once we had this you know script you know how to how to right. actually get it funded because yeah. um you know the average sort of the ideal demographic for most studio movies um and even many independent movies is this you know teenage and teenage and 20 year old demographic often it's you know boys 13 to 25 that's the target audience and this certainly wasn't that and um you know, so we kept sort of running up against, you know, we tried to kind of show it to some, some finan- financiers and producers who, uh, you know, had had some experience and, and everyone said, you know, nice idea, like the characters, but there's no audience for this movie. We don't believe older people go to the movies. And I kept thinking in my head, I, it just didn't compute. I, I, I thought that they were wrong, that there, in fact, was this big, audience out there that had been um, sort of underrepresented on screen and also off screen, that there weren't movies being made for them. And uh, so we decided after getting, you know, going the traditional route and getting a lot of kind of nice but no thanks to um, raise the money ourselves through, um, we hooked up with two two women who actually had come out of Wall Street and knew you know how to raise money, and um, that's what we did. We we raised the money independently and made the film, and um, you know, and then we we had to overcome the next hurdle, which was getting it distributed. Yes. <laughs> Should I tell you about that? Yes, go ahead. So uh, you know, we we finished the film, I guess, and and we had our first screening at the Hamptons Film Festival last October, hmm. and it got. The screenings were sold out, and it got an amazing response and a great review in Variety. And we thought the distributors are going to come knocking on the door because, you know, the screenings are sold out, good review, you know, it's a shoo-in. And um, so we started to show it to various distributors and, again, got the same response. Nice mm-hmm. movie, well-made, cute, uh, whatever. We don't think we, – we don't think that there's a big enough audience – for this demographic that we want to put our money into marketing it. That was essentially what we kept hearing. And again, I kept thinking, they're wrong. I know that, you know, and the audience that they were talking about was, you know, again, 40-ish and above. And I, being part of that demographic, I really, you know, I go to movies. You mean they were saying that people 40 and above don't go to movies? Not in enough Quantity. Quantity to make it worth their while to market it. That's because they're sitting home knitting. <laughs> right. And watching videos or television. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it just, again, wasn't making sense to me because I, you know, I have a teenage son and I go to the movies 
much more than he does. He's 16. He's online all the time and mm-hmm. watching, you know, cable TV or out playing sports, and he's, you know, got 150 cable stations to choose from, whereas I, I go to the movies at least once a week, and my 75-year-old mother and her friends who are retired, you know, they'll go two, three times a week mm-hmm. to the movie because they have that much more free time. So I kept thinking there is this audience out there, but maybe you don't recognize them because you're not making movies for them. It's right. sort of the chicken or the egg type right. thing. So we decided again um, to raise additional money and try to distribute the movie ourselves in a test market situation down in South Florida. We we hired a booking agent. And we, this was in March, and we opened the movie in 10 theaters in the West Palm Beach area, which is a, a, a big, reti- you know, I would say there's a lot of people 50 and above in this area. Because mm-hmm. we thought if it's going to work anywhere, it, it better work here. And if right. it doesn't work here, then we just sort of, you know, <laughs> we forget it. And uh, so we opened in 10 theaters, and the first weekend we did phenomenal box office business. We were doing better than the Hollywood movie in these theaters, in these mm-hmm. multiplexes. We were doing, we were like the number one or two theater up against Hollywood movies like, you know, V for Vendetta happened to open that week. Um, and we had no advertising money, no TV ads, no full-page color ads and magazines, nothing. It was all just some newspaper, some reviews, newspaper articles, uh, and um, word of mouth. And it continued to spread from there. We we kept doing great business, and we expanded ultimately to to about 28 screens in Florida. And our our box office numbers were quite sizable, so that suddenly we started to get reported on Variety, um, hmm. and distributors started to take notice. And then uh, one of those people who had turned us down originally decided maybe I should rethink this and pick up the film for national distribution. Well, and we'll take it from there after the break. Very interesting story. Obviously, a lot of uh, persistence and a lot of belief in the idea. Absolutely. And the pressure of trying to make it happen for your mother. (laughs) Right. Right. When we come back, we'll talk more about the Boynton Beach Club with my guest, director Susan Seidelman. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The Internet's premier talk radio station, VoiceAmerica.com. Join Patricia Raskin, host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Want to break in the action? 
Join us Thursdays, 8 to 9 a.m. and again from 8 to 9 p.m. for the L.A. Underground Comedy Show, hosted by stand-up comedian Ralph Benson, who also co-produces Comedy Beer Sex Appeal, Santa Monica's premier weekly stand-up comedy showcase at 14 Below. Originally from Rochester, New York, Ralph has been a bartender in Hollywood for over six years and is a veteran of the Los Angeles nightlife scene. If you've partied in L.A. since a millennium, chances are he's probably gotten you drunk. So untuck your shirt and have a stiff belt with Ralph's no-holds-barred approach with L.A. Underground Comedy Show on the Voice America channel, beginning May 25th and every Thursday from 8 to 9 a.m. and again at 8 to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on voiceamerica.com. At least 90% of sports success requires mental strength. And the greater the competitive level, the more critical it becomes to build that mental muscle. Tune into Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Jim Meyer, sports psychology coach, consultant, and author, offers practical, powerful, and positive mental game, tools, tips, and techniques. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental game with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about Never Too Late for Love, the Boynton Beach Club, with the director and producer of the movie, Susan Seidelman. She has a long list of credits. Um, Desperately Seeking Susan is certainly one that you probably have heard of. Um, she Devil, Confessions of a Suburban Girl, it goes on and on, Sex in the City, um, Episode Stella, um, and now <laughs> her latest, The Boynton Beach Club. And we were talking about the uh, the long road where you had to get through layers of naysayers um, to because you believed in it to uh, to get it distributed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> taking and, up the story from there. Well, we finally got it out uh, after you know opening it as a test market in South Florida. And it doing such good business, we then were able to attract the attention of some of the distribution companies that had turned it down originally because the box office numbers were proving that there was this audience that everyone told me didn't exist. And um, and as a result, uh, it was picked up by Roadside Attractions and the Samuel Goldwyn Company, um, who have had uh, you know some experience making movies for a slightly you know more adult um, demographic movies like Ladies in Lavender, and they did the Squid and the Whale last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and they've just started the national release. Uh, it started about a, a week ago, and it keeps expanding the number of theaters each week until it, you know, is across the country. Yes. Well, when I went, um, there was a line. I was kind of rushing there <laughs> and uh, expecting to be able to sort of get in right away. And there was just a long line standing outside the movie theater, and most of these people were going into that movie. It was oh, a multiplex. But <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that we found when we opened it in Florida was, you know, the first couple weeks, 
the average age of the audience, I would say, was, let's say, average 60 to 70. By the third week, it had become sort of more like 50 to 60. And by the fourth and fifth week, it had, you know, we were getting the 20 and 30-year-olds because it is, you know, even though the characters in the movie are in their 60s, it is about, you know, finding love again. It is about sort of making new friends, about feeling lonely and having to kind of start another chapter in your life. And I think that these are sort of, you know, universal experiences that if you're, you know, you go through it maybe at 20 and you can go through it at 40 and at 60 and some of the things are are, are the same no matter what age you're going through them. Yes, it's true. And, and um, uh, the idea of being resilient no matter what age you are, if you've been, even if you're 20 or 30 and you've been in a, in a very disappointing relationship, um, and you have to sort of start out again. I, I mean, a lot of the things really are similar, no matter what age. Of course, <laughs> then there is the Viagra scene. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but again, it's something that I think, you know, um, we should be talking about because, you know, we are, as we get older, we are healthier. We're, we're looking better. I mean, people at 60 today don't look like what people at 60 20 years ago looked right. like. And, um, you know, and people who are healthy, you know, are still, you know, interested in a romantic life. We don't just turn all that off at a certain age, and that doesn't just suddenly go away. And especially now, because we're healthier, because there are medications out there that are available, and uh, and, and because we're, we're just more youthful in our attitude, sex is a part of senior life, and people are... You know, it's about time people kind of talked about it. Yes. You know, I wonder if, uh, and you were talking about, I mean, in this cast, Diane Cannon, for example, um, she looked incredible. <laughs> right. And I, I read in some article that she was 69. I mean, she looks, you know, she could be 50. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, very sexy, <laughs> very vital, vibrant. Um, uh, what was I, there was something I was just going to ask you about... Um, well, I mean, think about oh. like the, the 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 people, you know, the, the sort of cultural icons from the '60s. You know, Mick Jagger is a grandfather. He's probably about 63 or 64. Paul McCartney is 64 this year. Um, so we have to change what our we, attitudes, <laughs> what we think those ages are, Absolutely. and those images have to change on TV and and yes. in, in the movies. You know, we well, can't. Sorry. Yes. Well, no. Actually, that's what I was going to ask you. Um, do you think maybe part of the resistance, besides this question of, you know, who goes to movies, um, was that people, let's say in their 40s, or who were making the decisions, um, were, didn't want to think about, or however old they were, didn't want to think about getting older and uh, being in, in these same kinds of situations? I mean, for the same reason that there are stereotypes in, so in so many movies and television shows, do you think that people it's, people are kind of warding off the the concept of old age and and by making them stereotypes, it's a way of not having to think about it. Maybe I I, I don't I mean that that's certainly a possibility. I, I think in part though that they're they're going on because I think Hollywood it, you know it's called the movie business and and their goal these executives that make decisions are there to make good business and financial decisions but i think that they are still relying on old financial models 
which is, for example, you know, in, in Madison Avenue, there's this, there was this idea that, you know, if you don't grab somebody and make them brand loyal by the time they're in their mm. mid-20s, they're never going to change. Um, and I think that that has changed. You know, older people do buy computers. 50 and 60 year olds do buy computers. They do change the, 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 the brand of their car. You know, maybe in years ago they, they, they didn't, but now they do. They, 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 they buy iPods. They mm-hmm. buy beauty products and, and health products. So I think, and, and I've been reading more and more articles um, like in the Wall Street Journal saying, whoa, you know, Madison Avenue, wake up. There's this mm. huge mm. demographic out there that does, uh, you know, have disposable income and they buy stuff. And I think that a lot of um, Hollywood uh, decisions are based on this old premise that, you know, advertisers don't want to appeal, aren't interested in, you know, advertising on a TV show for older people when, in fact, if you look at a lot of TV advertising, it's all so many drug ads and uh, insurance company ads yeah. that are all geared to 40 and above. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think uh, that your movie is going to do a lot to uh, to uh, change some of these, I mean, when, as it continues to do well, uh, to change some of these ideas. So are you going around the country or just being in New York as, in terms of speaking after the movies? Um, I did do some stuff when I was out in L.A. for the, the premiere about a week and a half ago, but I'm, I'm basically in New York and been doing a lot of stuff by phone. But, uh, again, this is a, a very much a word-of-mouth movie so that um, – and. It, it, also, it's sort of a new way of marketing. You know, the whole idea of word of mouth, of sending out email blasts, of letting people decide for themselves, not just listen to what the marketers tell them, but but sort of putting the power back in, pe- in people yes. <laughs> to, you know, promote a movie or not yes, is, is, yes. is sort of something that's it's changing the way we market things these days. And I think a lot of it has to do with the Internet, quite frankly, because now... Um, you know, it used to be we were kind of, uh, uh, you know, one or two critics could decide if the movie was good or yeah. bad, and then we'd, you know, that would be the end of it. But now there's so many more opportunities for people to have opinions. Um, that, yes, so it's kind of like the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> I guess. I mean, is that, it, you did a lot of that kind of Internet marketing. And it's a lot of Internet marketing, and it's a lot of screenings like the one your mom went to where they have screenings for... Um, for like film clubs and, uh, you know, and, um, invite a lot of people in the hopes that they're going to like the movie and then go out and talk about it yeah. because one of the things that we've noticed is that people over, let's say, 40, when they go to a movie, if they like it, they do talk about it. Yeah. They go after dinner. They go out to dinner afterwards and they discuss it with their friends. They tell their neighbors. 16-year-olds go to a movie even if they love it. You know, they, you know, I'll ask what's that? How did you like the movie? Fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's about all I can get out of them. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. So what, uh, our time is up here, but what, um, what is your next project? You know, I'm so busy still working on the, the distribution of this yes. that, uh, you know, after this I'm going to take a little vacation to, to kind of replenish my head. <laughs> You'll deserve it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us. On Dr. Carol's Couch, my guest, 
Susan Seidelman. She is the director and producer of the Boynton Beach Club. And um, you should absolutely go out and see it no matter what age you are. We're now going to be talking to Susan's mother. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Ask her about it. Thanks again. Sure. Best my pleasure. Best of luck with it. Thank you. So stay tuned. We'll be talking now with Florence Seidelman as, uh, and some more about the Boynton Beach Club, talking about the real stories that it was based on. Stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The Internet's premier talk radio station, voiceamerica.com. wonder what are the favorite travel destinations of the Hollywood Jet Set? Where do celebrities like to go when they aren't walking the red carpet? Tune in to Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk with President of Traveris, David Manning, and Lisa O'Hurley, golf aficionado and wife of actor John O'Hurley. On Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa talk with well-known actors, sports celebrities, and entertainment insiders to find out about their favorite travel destinations and what they recommend. On Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa also offer up feature vacations each week and last-minute deals for your next getaway. Find out what's new and exciting in the travel industry, as well as how to raise money for your nonprofit organizations while enjoying a wonderful vacation. Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk with David Manning and Lisa O'Hurley broadcasts each Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk, your inside look into celebrities and travel. The Woman MVP Who Sets You Free with host, entrepreneur, author, motivational speaker, corporate executive, philanthropist, wife, and mother, Luann Mitchell-Halter is an exciting and provocative look at the real world with real exciting guests and real stories of triumph and professionalism with a dash of spice sharing recipes for a better world on all the playing fields of life. Join Luann Mitchell-Halter as she and her guests uncover and expose us to our abilities to create our very own Big League MVP, My Victory Plan, Potential for Greatness. The Woman MVP Who Set You Free with Luann Mitchell-Halter broadcasts each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. The Woman MVP Who Set You Free. It's time to get off the bleachers, play the game of life, and be the MVP. Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Now we have the second half of the mother-daughter duo who wrote the Boynton Beach Club. 
So welcome to the show, Florence Seidelman. Hi, thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Carol. You're welcome, and I gather that I'm talking to you in Boynton Beach? No, you're talking to me in Atlantic City, New Jersey. <laughs> okay. Are you are you there for something to do with the movie? No, I'm here for the summer. Oh, well, that's, yes, yes. I guess I guess if one lives in Florida, going to New Jersey for the summer isn't a bad idea. Right, absolutely. Um. Well, your daughter was talking about how you wrote the original story, and also you and and she were both producers of the movie, which I loved. Oh, and um, and I thought that you could tell us about the how the story came about in the sense that, uh, in terms of the characters, um, Susan was you know mentioned that of course you live in an, you live in Boynton Beach normally. And uh, in an active adult community, correct. And um, perhaps you can give us a little a little um, peek behind the scenes and tell us about uh, about how you actually where you got these stories from. Um, whether you're now allowed back into Boynton. Are you sure you're not there because the people that you wrote about? <laughs> I, I would love to tell you. Can I start at the beginning, Dr. Carroll? Sure. Okay. A close friend of mine died. And her husband was devastated. So he went to a bereavement group in Florida. And about a year later, well, he went there after six months. And when he came back to his summer home here in Atlantic City, where I also live, he was vitalized. The women had, you know, told him how wonderful he was, how sexy. And I I could see a change. And he was, at this point, ready to go on with his life. Well, he was telling some of his experiences, dating experiences, to some of the men around the pool. And my husband overheard, and he came up and said, Florence, there's a story here. I think that you should write a a screenplay. So uh, I had never done that before. Um, So I called Susan, and she was involved with something else. And she said, Mom, why don't you write the screenplay? And I said, Susan, I, I never did this before. So she said, go to a bookstore and find out how to do it, and that's exactly what I did. And and six months later, I presented her with a 130-page script, and Susan read it, and she said, you know, I think you've got something here, but it's a little too sad, and it really wasn't in the greatest script form. And she said, do you mind if I rewrite it? I said, absolutely not. The Then the story is is fiction, but a lot of it is based on the feelings and emotions, particularly Jack, the character in the movie, who is so devastated when his wife dies. Um, there were two things that I did bring from my friend into the movie, and that was my friend loved hearts. And if anyone that's seen it will see their hearts all over the house that Jack lives in. Mm. And she also kept a diary. And the movie is dedicated to her to Marilyn, and also I had two Marilyns that died within two months of each other. Of each other. Um, so after the, the script was rewritten, um, Susan called me and said, Mom, how would you like to be the producer? And I said, sure. Mm-hmm. Here again. <laughs> What's a producer? What's you, a go producer? Get a, you go get a book? <laughs> I couldn't get a book on how to be a producer because she said to me, well, you have to get the funding. That's one of the things you have to do. Right. So I said, oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to see what I can do. Anyway, I was able to locate uh, someone, 
and, and Susan spoke to them, two women who had worked on Wall Street, and together we were able to raise the fund. It is a low-budget film, and so it wasn't $35 million, and um, anywhere near that. And um, we were able to do it, and we had such wonderful support, at least I did. They were in the business. They had been on Wall Street, so they had colleagues there that saw the value in a movie like this. And I had family and friends and nieces and neighbors, and they all just came out and said, we want to be part of this movie. Mm-hmm. We think that there's a story here that hasn't been told and that we think it should be told about people our age and the fact that we have such vitality and that we can be very youthful in many ways. Um, I would like to just say that when I wrote the script, I was 72. When I became the producer, I was 73. When I became the distributor, I was 74, and I just had a birthday, so I'm 75, mm-hmm. and I don't feel old. So um, that is the feeling we want to show people. In addition, Susan made it for 60-year-olds, for younger people, and she does show some of the fun of dating uh, as well as showing some of the things that do go on in Florida with the early bird specials and you know other things that take place. Um, May I go on? Yes, go okay. ahead. You know, um, well, just like you, one of the things you just when you were talking about the hearts, one of the things that you reminded me of that I thought was especially, uh, I really liked, especially was when you introduced the characters. Um, you showed pictures of them uh, as they were when they were in their twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the couples, the two of them, as they were, and I thought that that went a, a long way to. Um, sort of reminding people that, well, like when we see somebody of a certain age, we think of them as only being at that age. We don't realize that they once looked like this, you know. You see the aging process, right? <laughs> and, and that was that was Susan's idea, and yes, I thought it was I, terrific. Yeah. I, I, I thought that that was that was very meaningful. And uh, well, go ahead. Um, so your friend, in other words, who was who had been bereaved, who lost his wife, Marilyn, was essentially the, the, um, uh, the real-life character that Jack was based upon. Yeah, but all the stories, we don't want you to feel that all of the things that took place were part of his life, but he definitely was the inspiration for this movie. <laughs> and we, did... we shouldn't believe that he went into a, uh, a uh, pharmacy and stood right. online and looked, <laughs> asked for Viagra and the, right. and the woman shouted out uh, right. absolutely <laughs> the Absolutely doesn't want anyone to think that. <laughs> but, but, um, but his emotions and feelings at his loss are yeah. real. And and the difficulty, the, the you know the the sensitivity that um, there was a lot of sensitivity, and with all of the characters actually in the movie, with with each of them, um, uh, were were these people that he told you about? I mean, how did you um, did, did you also know some of these people aside from what he told yeah. you about in this group? Yeah. yeah, I did. I spoke to a lot of people. Look, at my age, there are a lot of widows and widowers out there. And I spoke to a lot of people, and I was surprised how many had gone to, to bereavement groups and had met people, and that there's a whole romance that goes on, and not in all groups, but in some. And, and so a lot of the things in the movie came from my experiences with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, uh, so many of the things are not true, um, 
And, and it would have been a different movie if, if, if it had been the way I had written it originally. I don't think it would have been nearly as much fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we didn't want people to sit there and cry. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but um, after uh, we started the production, uh, I said we did raise the funds. But being a producer was a lot more than just raising the funds. We did have an accountant doing the checks and everything. But after... Seven weeks he left, and of course there was all the bills to pay and the music mm. licenses. There was an awful lot of things that I had to learn, and it was expected of me that I would do my job, mm. and and um, and I've learned a lot about the film industry, and um, and then when the movie was completed, and we thought we had a wonderful movie, we thought that every, you know, movie studio would come running to us and say, wow, well, I thought so, because I was naive about the business. But Susan realized that in order for us to get the movie out, we would have to do self-distribution. And that's what we did. We we did the distribution in Florida. We started in Florida, and we made limited amount of prints, we were very lucky to get someone who was willing to get us into the movie theaters. And and this is kind of fun because, you know, I'm not a professional, so I reacted in a different way um, than the average filmmaker would. So the movie opens at 10 theaters, and my friends and I and my husband, we assign everyone to different mm. movie theaters. And the first, you know, Friday night, and we stand there and, and we see that, Long lines. We sneak up, you know, and listen. They're saying, Point and Beach, Point and Beach, Point and Beach. It was absolutely, I can't begin to tell you how thrilling it was. And the phone calls back and forth because being in Florida, of course, it was, the movies were packed. And we showed it in Boynton, Delray, and Boca, and so many of the extras had come from those areas, so all their friends were coming in their family. <laughs> and and the movie did so well that what happened after two months, a distributor came to us that was Roadside Attractions and Samuel Goldwyn, and they said, who is this Wingate Distribution, you know, this new company? And then they contacted Susan and said that they saw the movie and that they thought it was wonderful and that they would like to be our distributors. And so now it's going off into a national release. And, you know, for me, you can imagine how thrilling it is. I mean, this is something I never did, never would have thought that I could do, although, you know, I am a college graduate. Um, um, my had two purposes, if I might tell you, mm-hmm. when I started writing. I never thought it would go this far, but... Um, basically, my degrees are in social activity, social skills, working human interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a degree working a master's, working with the severely profoundly impaired. Hmm. And then my second master's is with working with children who have learning disabilities. It's the Ecology of Reading Department at Temple. And, and so my initial thought was if this movie would come out, there would be hope for people that had had a loss and that they maybe would go out and seek whether it be therapy or, or a group that could help mm-hmm. them because life has to go on and, and the person that died would, for the most part, want them to go on with their lives 
and their children would want that as well. And and then as I got more and more involved with the movie, my second realization was that perhaps this could make a difference, a difference in the way Hollywood looks at movies, that basically most movies are made for much younger people, and then that this could maybe make a difference, and, and I hope it will. So yes, well, I think that both, both of those aims uh, are in the process of being realized because, um, as I said in, earlier in the show to Susan, that um, there was certainly a long line where I was went to see it in Los Angeles, and um, I think I think it is going to change uh, the way people think of things and the, and the demographics that they think go to movies. I don't know right. why, why they think that, but. Well, we'll have to take a break now. My guest okay. is Florence Seidelman. She is the uh, original story writer of the Boynton Beach Club and a producer. It's kind of like Jackie Mason. Do you know his routine? I'm a producer. Here's my card. I'm a producer. Here's my card. What do I produce? Cards. <laughs> but you're a real producer. Okay. So when we come back, um, we'll talk more with Florence and hear more about Boynton Beach Club. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The Authority and Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Live in the Green Life with Kim Carlson, echopreneur, author, and green living maven, brings you an upbeat, fun exploration of the doables of living a more earth-friendly life. Kim cuts through the noise and urban myth of green do's and don'ts and shows that it is possible to live green easily. From hip organic weddings to exotic echo travel to healthy personal care products, get the most current trends and tips from the experts for living a more planet-friendly and human lifestyle. Live in the Green Life with Kim Carlson, broadcast each Thursday at noon pacific 3 p.m eastern on the voice america channel living the green life for a human healthy and planet-friendly lifestyle tune in every friday at 10 a.m pacific standard time for powerful prayer with host connie coddington each week connie and her guests will explain the healing system called christian science and share stories of how they have used the spiritual laws of god to bring healing to their lives you can learn how to bring healing to your life too So tune in to Powerful Prayer with host Connie Coddington every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, only on Voice America, America's Voice. Albert Einstein once said, nothing happens until something moves. Will your movement towards realizing a dream, making a long-lasting change to your life, or simply putting a daily smile on your face is just a click away. Tune into Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney and Free Your Mind. Open your heart and ignite action in your life. Host and commander in change, empowerment coach, and international speaker, Scott Chesney shares his insights to making the most out of your daily lives. Scott interviews people who are maximizing their lives, the most recognizable transformationalists and leaders around the world, as well as those hometown heroes that move, touch, and inspire the best in all of us. Stay tuned into Maximizing Life for Scott's one-on-one coaching with callers. Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney broadcasts each Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney, inspiring you to live life with passion, purpose, and limitless potential. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 
472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking, uh, well, this half of the show, we're talking with Florence Seidelman, the mother of Susan Seidelman. She was the producer and uh, wrote the original story for The Boynton Beach Club, a movie that you have to see. You know, it's a great movie. I, Florence, I do a lot of talking on this show about um, terrorism and things in the news, and of course things in the news are generally not good, and uh, I do that to sort of put them on my couch and analyze them to help people cope with and, and look behind and understand, you know, the stories. But um, well, sometimes it's really good to just escape from all of that. <laughs> and the Boynton Beach Club would be a great escape, so I suggest that you duck into one of the theaters where it's playing this weekend and uh, and and get laughs but also learn some poignant things about life. And um, during the break, you started telling me, Florence, about um, what, how this, when this movie came about, how it turned out to be a love-in for Boynton Beach and, and a lot of Florida. Right, absolutely. Um, what happened is um, we needed many extras, and Susan, again, <laughs> came to her mother and said, you know, you have so many friends and neighbors, you could probably get extras quicker than anyone else, so... Um, first of all, my community asked, uh, said if my street would all sign a paper mm. that we could film on the street, they would allow the filming to take place, and it was eight or nine days that we filmed in Malaysia Circle in Boynton Beach. Mm. Every neighbor said yes. Um, when we needed houses, we needed a few houses for people because of the movie took place in Boynton right. Beach, and Brenda's house is on my street. I had like 20% of the people of my neighbors volunteer their homes, which meant they had to leave their house for five or six days. Hmm. In some cases, it would be repainted. And, and really, it's quite a mess. I, I had no idea when I asked them. I think I'm embarrassed now. But they were, we did use one of the homes, and, and the woman had the best time of her life because she was very involved in the film. Hmm. And then we needed maybe 350, 400 extras. Wow. So we had a, a photographer come with a Polaroid, and they took, we put a notice up in my clubhouse, and about I get about 150, 200 of my neighbors, people living there, came and they had their pictures taken, and then we went to other communities as well. And, and this was, will you work 10, 12 hours a day? No pay. <laughs> and and everyone was delighted to do it. Mm. I mean, when I didn't, I couldn't call everyone. I, I, I would think I'm going to guess that maybe we used 250 extras. So there were many people that had not been called. And I got, you know, they called me. Why didn't you call me? We huh. heard it's fabulous. They had such a good time. And part of the reason was, number one, they had never gone to a set and hear all these trucks around, mm-hmm. wardrobe trucks and makeup trucks and electric, you know, for electric power and and and, and for the lighting. Um, in addition, the crew and cast were so wonderful to my neighbors who were older people mm-hmm. uh, that when I said a love, and it really was. I mean, you, Michael Norrie was kissing the women while they were 
they were dying, you know, <laughs> good looking. And Brenda was going around and hugging, and you know, it became a very warm, personal thing and a project. And, and I think maybe that warmth is in the script, transcends into the movie itself. The warmth yeah. there between the people, it, it was real. Yes. You know, I was actually thinking, and I guess maybe it's too early to to be able to know about this yet. But it, it seems like um, this <laughs> there might be a lot more people wanting to move into Boynton Beach. <laughs> I mean, it did make it seem like the community was so supportive of each other, um, whether it's bereavement or just in any way that everyone was so warm that um, I wouldn't be surprised if your real estate goes up in <laughs> Well, it's a, one of the fastest-growing areas in the country. Huh. But there are other places, Other, you know, it's in Boca, it's in Florida, it's in Arizona. There are so many retirement communities that offer... I don't know if you're aware of the things that go on in the communities. I mean, they, they, you don't have to leave. Of course, we're vital. It's not like assisted living. It, we all go out to dinner. You saw the early birds, but yes. not always. We know the difference. But, but there are in the, uh, if someone wants to retire, there are places that are of limited income. You know, they're all scales. But clubhouses offer movies and shows exercise rooms they they have book reviews and they have art classes um, and and bowling leagues and dance clubs uh, that uh, tennis courts in some places golf courses of course in the country club communities and that there's such a wonderful opportunity for people who are older if they want to go to a retirement area you know and and, and live like that and it can be at all economic levels. It's like camp for grown-ups. It is definitely like <laughs> camp. Yeah, yeah, we we have a good time. We really do. Yes. Now, I'm interested to know how this has changed um, your standing in the community. I mean, do um, I mean? Of course, now you're you're the number one celebrity. I guess. <laughs> um. <laughs> Be modest. No, well, no, no, no. People, people do come up to me. Um, it's, it's strange. As a kid, I was never one to like swoon over movie stars. You know, people. You know, I think Frank Sinatra's music is is wonderful, but I know a lot of the people owe Frankie. But I was never one to react that way. And and to be very honest, I'm, I am humbled by this. I am completely flattered. That, that you would want to interview me, that you feel or others feel that what I have to say is important and might make a difference. And so I don't really think of myself as a, as a celebrity. I'm just doing what I like to do, and I feel good about it, and I feel good about myself for doing it. And, and, and that's important to me. Um, you know, I don't... I, it's wonderful that I'm in newspapers and radio and television, but, but you know, that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. Okay? Am I explaining myself? Yes, yes. Okay. And, um, and yes, and as Susan was saying also, I mean, I think it is uh, this movie, the two of you and this movie, has is doing a lot for changing some of these Hollywood stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um of of what people after a certain age are doing or are like, and certainly the fact that they have a sex life and and that uh, 
and a love life and, um, you know, have fun and, and, uh, all of these, each of these actors, um, and the cast, Joseph Bologna, Diane Cannon, Lynn Carew, Sally Kellerman, Michael Norrie, Brenda Vaccaro, Renee Taylor, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, were, were great, um, uh, spokespeople for how vital people are um, after a certain age. I mean, especially I was mentioning Diane Cannon. She's a sex symbol no matter what age she right, is. Right, I thought Sally Kellerman was too. Well, yeah, she was a very <laughs> sensuous woman with yes. her body movements. Yes. You know, I don't know if I have a minute left, well, yeah, we, but something very interesting was we tried to show the bonding of men. That's something yes. you as a psychologist, psychiatrist would know that that doesn't happen the way it is with women. Am I correct? Yes, yes. And we tried very hard to show how the two men could talk to each other about intimate things, and, and I think that's a very important aspect yes, of the movie. Yes, that was a very lovely part of the movie, to see um, the man who had been widowed longer and knew his way around more and, and how he took the newly bereaved man um, under his wing and and, uh, and how they talked about really sensitive topics but in a way that that was very gentle and didn't make uh, the, the newly bereaved man feel, um, oh, inadequate or incompetent or, you know, he just... Uh, it was a very difficult time, and, and certainly that friendship. So, well, just like it was between Diane um, Cannon and Brendan Vaccaro, mm-hmm. um, Lois and Mary, Marilyn, mm-hmm. um, you know how that this how, how important friendship is, and of course that's something that obviously with your degrees you, you've learned about too. That social support, actually at any age, has been shown now by research to uh, really prevent all kinds of illnesses, psychological and physical. Mm-hmm. So that was an important aspect to show. And I hear music, (laughs) and that unfortunately means that our time is up. But I want to thank you very much for coming on the show, Lauren Seidelman, the um, producer, and uh, she has a card now. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And she wrote the original story for Boynton Beach Club. I also want to tell you that Boynton Beach Club, the movie, is a website, www.boynton.com beachclubthemovie.com and uh, why don't you go to that and look up more about the movie and it'll entice you uh, even further to go see it yourself and to tell other people to go see it it is not just for you don't have to be a senior citizen (laughs) to get in it's for all ages um, and it's to understand people better of all ages so thank you again and I wish you all kinds of success with this (laughs) even as humble as you are to receive it Thank you very much. Thank thank, you. And thank you all for listening. This is Dr. Carol Lieberman, your psychiatrist um, host, and you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch on voiceamerica.com. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 